brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty and today I'm going to be talking to Megan Nolan, the best-selling author and essayist, whose first novel, Acts of Desperation, received a Betty Trask Award. Megan's latest novel, Ordinary Human Failings, is a novel that explores the complex and nuanced lives of people brought together by a shocking crime. Megan, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank you so much. Um, The book starts with the murder of a young girl. Girl, Mia and an older girl from the same estate Lucy Green is immediately implicated as the perpetrator and then the book delves into the lives of Lucy's Irish family via the frankly delicious character of a journalist called Tom and he's a bit of a weird character to have as a, to have as a favourite character because he's so morally bankrupt but I absolutely <laughs> loved him um, and he sees his readers as peasants and he <laughs> takes the family to a hotel when Lucy's arrested and he plies them with booze for information that he can print I don't know why I loved him so much because I know he's you know he's such a horrible person but he's so unwittingly comic I love the bit where his mum gives him money to buy two suits for his new (laughs) job and he buys a a mossy green one and gets mistaken for a member of the green party (laughs) and there's I think my favorite line is where he scrunches his mouth up to the side in a little anus of concern (laughs) absolutely fantastic did you enjoy writing that character I did and yeah he I I quite like him as well and obviously you know he he serves a function in the book which is to like um exhibit some of the darker sides of the British media and, you know, what he's doing is, as you say, very morally bankrupt. But actually he was not based on anyone in particular, but I had this very, very brief encounter when I was doing some shifts at the Metro newspaper and we shared a building with a number of other newspapers and one of which was the Daily Mail. And I had to do like a shared training day with a bunch of journalists from all of, all over these different papers. And I met this really sweet young boy who was about 20 who had just moved to London that day to begin at the Daily Mail <laughs> from, from somewhere quite provincial and he was so sweet and so excited I just remember leaving that day being like oh god what's going to happen to that boy he's either going to fail or he's going to become a bad person yes it's got to be one or the other <laughs> go back there should be a documentary where you see him every year he was so sweet so yeah I, I was thinking about him when I was writing the character where it's like because it's very easy as, as I for many years did to think about tabloid journalists as just being purely malevolent people but you know they all start probably from somewhere and don't want to you know even even the people who write things that I find completely morally objectionable presumably didn't start from a point of being like oh I'd love to write some fascist stuff right now and of course and they're still yeah. human beings with yeah with you know vulnerabilities and in yeah. lives and yeah and you do you give him the vulnerabilities that you give him of kind of neediness on his part or insecurity they only serve to to make him far more rounded and and actually to illuminate his Machiavellian side yeah yeah, exactly. And, and you know, he is very career driven, but that, as you say, is, is like partially to do with the fact that he has, you know, no other centre. So so this is like, it's everything for him because he doesn't have another sort of personhood to go alongside it. So that's partly why he's so, you know, uh, horrifyingly driven to find this big story that actually in the end perhaps doesn't exist in in the way that he thought it might. Yeah, and it really feels like he wants to 
boil down. So this Irish family that mm. he wants to get these secrets from, he wants to get these column inches and he gets there first to the murder scene out of journalists and thinks, this is my chance, really, mm. just viewing it from the point of view of his career. And it feels like he wants to find out this secret about them and to kind of distill all the chaos and complexity of their lives into good or evil, mm. like into one thing. I suppose, why would he? Because he's a tabloid journalist. But rather than consider that the cauldron of misfortune and tragedy and kind of blips, the sort of sliding doors thing where it could have gone one way or another for them, which we see then as the novel progresses, these times in their lives where they've made choices that haven't served them well, but they've had mm. their reasons to. But I, I feel like there is this inclination sometimes to want to explain things away, especially something like a murder, by going, oh, well, there was this thing, mm. so that's why. Why do you think we've got that need as humans to do that? Mm, the conversation around like tra trauma narratives, I think, is really interesting right now because we're sort of emerging from a moment where it was quite simplistic and and people are now starting to criticise the more straightforward way of doing that. And there was a great article, I can't remember who wrote it now, but there was a great article in The New Yorker about a year ago that was criticising this sort of trauma narrative. Trauma math, I think, was the term that was used where it's like, oh, this person did a bad thing because this bad thing happened to them. And of course, like, it's not unreasonable to discuss someone's prior history in terms of the, the acts that they then go on to commit. But this thing of, yeah, like very simplistically going X, Y and Z happened and therefore that person did something is, I think now is being seen by people who are interested in that conversation as a little bit too... Too simplistic. Too black simplistic, and white. Yeah. But I think it's, you know, I think it's a fair, it's a very reasonable inclination though, because I mean, to pretty much everyone, acts of extreme violence feel, even though you might logically know that we're all potentially capable of them, you don't really like to actually think that's true. And so it's so horrifying to think about hurting another person in that way or to, to like destroy someone's life or take someone's life that it makes perfect sense why we're all eager to have a very X, Y and Z narrative about it. And, and that's partly what the tabloid aspect is about, is reassuring people that there's a very good reason why someone is bad and why they were able to hurt another person. Part of what I was reading about when I was researching stuff to do with the book was I, I read a book called The Sleep of Reason by David Thompson, which is about the James Bulger case and the media frenzy around that. People were so understandably shocked and harrowed by what had happened there that they needed to have a story about those two boys and, and their childhoods, which actually, you know, they did have difficult childhoods, but they actually weren't the harrowing, like, extreme negligence case that the tabloids wanted them to be. And that was, you know, it was really a great example of how people want to simplify those sorts of things. It's also perhaps because they want to go, that would never happen to me. Yeah, exactly. And, and and no child of mine could ever do those things because I would never neglect my child, so therefore they could never harm another child. And, and it's a very understandable impulse and it's not, you know, it's very human and it, it's not a bad one, really. It's just it's just not always correct. No, and it's harder to go. Actually, we are all capable of it. That's a hard thing to sit with. Yeah, and like violence is, you know, sadism even and violence are things that, are not rationed out in a logical way and people experience them in blips and, and in waves and in, in a way that is, is very disturbingly incoherent, basically. With the thing of him taking them to the hotel and, like, really plying them with booze and yeah. meticulously planning, oh, I'm going to go to the grandfather's room first, that's John, I'm going to talk to him, but actually he's already drinking so I might not get much sense out of him. I'll, OK, I'll go, I'll go mm. to Carmel's room and... 
I found it quite... Because I don't know very much about the tabloid world. Mm. I was like, wow, I, I can't believe this goes on. But that presumably does go on, that they're that conniving. I've never worked for a tabloid. I've been in... I've worked in newspapers, but I've never directly for a tabloid. I've been in the environment a little bit, but not very intensively. But I've always been interested in journalism, even before I was doing it myself. So I've read a lot about that world. And when I started to think about this book, I read a lot about it. But and actually, the premise of the book came from a single line in a nonfiction book. The book was about Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper killer, by a great writer called Gordon Byrne. And he wrote a book called Somebody's Husband, Somebody's Son. And it, it wasn't a big part of the book, but there was a throwaway line or anecdote within it that said that a tabloid journalist had approached Peter Sutcliffe's family. His father certainly had a drinking problem and several other of his close relatives. And someone approached them from a tabloid and, and yeah, basically did what I'm talking about in the book and offered to put them up and give them unlimited booze and, you know, some pocket money or whatever and, and so that they'd be sequestered from other tabloids. And this wasn't gotten into in the book, but I was very struck by the image of this hotel. I actually can't even remember if it ever even came to fruition in reality, or whether it was just offered to them. But yeah, this idea of the hotel came from that. And then when I was researching the book, I read a bunch of memoirs by tabloid journalists. <laughs> and most of them were written before, like, Levinson... Is it, sorry, I can't remember if it's Levison or Levinson. Oh, I think it's Levison, the, Levison the, inquiry. the phone hacking inquiry. Yes. Yeah. So the ones that I read all came out before that. So the culture obviously has... I mean, you know, it's still a dreadful culture in the UK. I mean, you know, legendarily around the world, even now people know it as one of the most evil <laughs> media cultures in the world. But it was a lot worse before. It was so ruthless before that era where I think people started to kind of question how extreme they had gotten. And so these these memoirs, just I just read a handful of them, maybe three or four, but they were written before that era had had sort of shifted a bit. And so these memoirs were written in a very shameless way. And they, they were almost bragging about the things that they would do. And yeah, just, just completely, you know, things that you would think any normal person would find absolutely barbaric. And, and they were very lackadaisical about disclosing them in these memoirs. I bet it was amazing to read in a way yeah. because, yeah, you got this unbridled account of what they were like, which in a similar way to imagining acts of violence, I sort of can't imagine having that hunger for no. scandal in the way that I think you have to, to be a tabloid journalist. Another thing that really jumped out to me is the self-preservation and pride in a, in a lot of characters in the book. And I mm. thought there was a really lovely moment where Richie, the brother of Carmel, um, so there are three generations, really, aren't there? Mm. There's Rose and John, who are the grandparent figures, and then there's Richard and Carmel, who are in the middle, and then there's Lucy, who's the daughter of Carmel. So Richard, who is an alcoholic yeah. and is such an endearing character, I just, I just absolutely loved him, and I loved seeing inside his head when he had these attempts to give up drinking, mm. and I really wanted to reach out to him. And there's this lovely bit where you're talking about him trying to help himself where he's almost awake and the aware part of him is kind of caring for him it's like a yeah. guardian and it doesn't want him to be subjected to crushing reality yeah. essentially so yeah. it's trying to keep him asleep for as long as possible and there's other really good examples I think of self-preservation in it like when Carmel finds out she's pregnant and the easiest thing to do would be to tell her ex-boyfriend because he's just ended it but she can't stand for him to just be with her because he's doing the right thing yeah I mean it's a much harder road for her to choose but she does it because her instincts are telling her to and I think they're telling her to have pride yeah how good are you at listening to and obeying your instincts, even if they're saying something that isn't you know sometimes you think oh it's not the right thing to do but for some reason <laughs> my instincts I mean 
to a bad degree, I think I do follow my instincts. And then, well, no, I was about to be quite critical of myself, but actually it's always kind of worked out in the end. They're often really painful to follow because, well... I intentionally am, I, I live like a, I guess in an objective sense, like a fairly selfish life in that I don't have children or dependents and I kind of intentionally live in a way that means I can more or less do what I want most of the time. I don't mean that in a no, I know what flippant you mean. way. You, you but don't have to think, oh, I've got to be back by so-and-so no, because, you know, yeah, necessarily exactly. as much as you would if you had to live by a schedule that had a lot of logistics yeah. imposed upon it. And I suppose I do follow that instinct and it's very painful at times. You have freedom in that way, but then you also sacrifice a huge amount to live in that way as well. And so I guess I do tend to follow that instinct. But I, yeah, I've never really known whether that's right or not. But it's always, I guess, in I met my editor, who, Michal, who um, edited both my books. And we met up the other night and she's a great woman and um, I, I really admire her a lot. And she has like kind of almost the opposite situation to me where she has three children of her own and four stepchildren all living at home. So she has seven yeah. <laughs> children in her house right now. So, you know, she she has a very divergently opposite life to me. And I was saying like I was kind of wondering, I walked to meet her in Blackheath and was walking from where I live in, in, in South London to there, walked for about an hour and a half and was kind of reflecting on some recent changes in my life and a breakup and some other things. You, you do rue the loss of these ties that you willingly give up and you're thinking like did I do the right thing did I make the right choice and I was kind of thinking you know I wish I was a little bit different so I could that could have worked out with that person but actually I'm not different and I wouldn't wouldn't have been if I made that choice to stay with that person or whatever and what would have happened if I did was I would resent having not been able to write books if I had stayed with that person or whatever it might have been you know and so yeah I tried to have some faith in myself, but it's hard, you know, even even though I believe in following those instincts, it's it's difficult. It's not easy. I think there's this, well, it's really hard to do. Yeah. Because you are sometimes stepping into an uncomfortable place or making your life more difficult. Yeah. But I think there's tremendous value to it, professionally as well. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, I guess, you know, like a lot of the stuff I'm doing, I don't know how it's going to work out in the end. And it's sort of, I've got a terrible attention span in general, so I feel like <laughs> I feel like I feel like I live my life a little bit according to that. Where I'm like, well, gotta see what's gonna happen in the next, you know. Like even though it might be horrible, it's kind of interesting to see. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're plunging in, aren't you? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I'm similar. <laughs> um, there's another theme that leaps out to me, which is private pain. I was really struck by this. So there's this moment where, and this teacher Serena, who's Lucy's mm. teacher in London, um, when Lucy's previously been violent towards another pupil, that mm. seems like a prelude to to what happens um, with um, the girl Mia dying. Private pain. It's like, so this teacher, Serena, we, we just see inside her in a life for a short time. Mm. But I think it's quite key. She's got a disabled sister called Eloise with um, a deformed spine and some other disabilities. And she sees her sister crying and doesn't know why she's crying, but has this moment of realising that that her sister could be in extreme pain all the time and that mm. no one knew about it. That moment really, really stayed with me. Mm. I think you wrote it so beautifully and, and you wrote about Serena's shame at not wanting to see that. I just wondered, why is it so interesting? And actually with the murder, I suppose, the private pain of the family, and they are all in pain, actually, mm. sometimes due to the past and sometimes due to the present or both. Mm. That private pain has to become public. Why is it so interesting to explore what happens then when it's kind of pushed into the realm of kind of everyone seeing it? Yeah, I think I wrote the book fairly sequentially. So like it kind of was written more or less as as you read it. And 
So so I wrote that scene with um, Serena, the teacher, before I'd written any of the rest of it. And so it definitely was like emblematic of what I was, you know, hope to explore with major characters in the book. It's not an attractive trait, but I think if you're a relatively sensitive person, the pain of other people is is horrible, but it's like rational to not be able to take on other people's pain, basically. And I'm really interested in that and what level you're able to or should be able to take on other people's pain and, and be responsible for other people's circumstances in, in, in that way when when you yourself might be quite fragile. It's impossible to say that's sounding like really self-serving or something, but like I get very upset when I hear about other people's troubles, right? And so like when when I'm feeling not in the best place myself, I do find it quite impossible, not impossible to hear other people's um, stories or anything, but like in any sincere, you know, useful way, I find it very, very hard to engage with other people's troubles when I'm not doing well, which I hate, you know, and, and I have people in my life, especially my dad, who's, you know, he's a very, very sensitive person, but he never really lets himself disengage from other people. And he's so responsible in that way to everyone, not not just his close people, to, to the community, you know, and I'm, I'm so unable to do that. So I find it very admirable when I see anyone who's able to sort of engage with the pain of other people. And yet with the main characters, the family, as you said earlier, like a lot of it is about pride as well. So like, even though they're all obviously suffering, the idea of that suffering being acknowledged in public is so horrifying and so icky, you know. And if I actually tried to be sincere about how I feel in public, it's impossible. You know, it's not really a thing I can do. And it's not for everyone either, is it? Like, if it doesn't make you feel better, then yeah. you don't have to do it. Like, I no, think sometimes exactly, yeah. there's so many podcasts now about, like, mental health. I sometimes think when I go on them, I'm like, oh, I must I must delve deep. And I'm like, it's like, well, actually, no, I really don't have to. No, like, no. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, I also think that some people, like you're saying about your dad, I think um, some people actually kind of get sustenance from helping other people, mm. no matter how full their own lives are with stuff going on. I think I'm similar to you. I find it really difficult if I've got stuff going on too. I don't really feel like I've got the capacity. I kind of view it like a glass that's nearly yeah. full. And But I think I know a few people who actually get energy and sustenance from helping other people, no matter how yeah. full their cup is. So I just think maybe, yeah, for some people it's different. Like Rose, actually, the, mm. the character in this who's Carmel's mum. Yeah. I think she's someone who who seems to have this capacity to to want to help. When Lucy's born, Rose kind of takes care of the baby and she yeah. seems to have this unending capacity to help. And there's only really one moment where we see her her own pain, which I remember really clearly, which is when she receives notification that her parents' graves have become overgrown mm. and that other people complaining about it whose relatives are also buried in that graveyard and that was a really key moment for me because you just see this kind of well of they've mm. had to move to London because her daughter got pregnant unwed in Ireland they've yeah. gone and yet she's asked her sister to to keep these graves and it just it yeah. just hasn't happened so I thought that moment was really powerful because you see Rose as I think one of those people that I've just described or I did mm, at least mm. where it's like they'll just carry on helping other people and being there and it's like no actually they they also have a lot of stuff going on yeah because yeah I think you're totally right that she gains sustenance from her utility in the world and maybe the comfortable way for her to exist in the dynamics of the family that she's the caretaker and she makes everything okay for everyone else but yeah of, of course she has her own pain and and I think there's a certain maybe when Richie is talking to Tom the journalist where he's saying you know she she was like a person once and then she kind of had her personality eroded somewhat by 
her usefulness because, you know, she willingly but, you know, exclusively sort of took care of the family in, in this way. She had to be good all the time. And she, you know, no one's good all the time. And so, yeah, the, that was a really good edit, actually. Someone suggested that they wanted one more scene with Rose. And I thought, oh, you're right, actually, she needs one where you see that she's not just lovely, you know. That oh, she... and that was the great yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it really serves that purpose. It just, in one short moment, actually, it's like you're glimpsing into a deep well and then you move on, but yeah. then that stays. So you've done it really beautifully in that one moment. And actually, it's more powerful than there being eight reminders of her kind of going, oh, I've got to take the bins out <laughs> <Yeah>. again. <laughs> Rose will do it. So no, it's much better just to have that. It's so it's so lovely. And again, that chimes with the pride thing for me, the idea mm. for her that these graves are not only mm. overgrown, which is a you know a horrible sight, but also that it's causing issues for other people. Oh yeah, I mean it just yeah, I, I really can imagine how horrifying that would be for for you as a, as someone at a remove. Even though England is not far away from Ireland, you know, to be in a different country and have that feeling of like I've let my parents down and let them down in a way that is permanent because they're dead already, you know, so sure. you, you kind of like can't really make it up to them even. So and, and that feeling of like, I can never console this mistake I've made is is really strong. And, you know, some, something that in a very different way I relate to about being away from my home and like having not lived in Ireland for quite a long time now, there's lots of things that go on there that I feel I'll never quite reconcile, you know, even even though I'm very lucky, like all my close family are still alive and I don't have any like permanent disengagement from Ireland. But there's that feeling of like, oh, things are changed now. I don't, that's not my home anymore. And there are things you can't go back and fix now. Yeah, even yeah. if it's just that too much time's gone by. Yeah. Just, yeah. Um, well, let's move on to your objects. We always yeah. ask people to bring a few things to talk to us about. And the first thing you've brought in is something to read. So my best friend, Darren. Darren's from Waterford, where I'm from. And, uh... <laughs> I mean, this is like a joke between us that I, I insist on whenever I introduce her to anyone, I always make sure that I say this, is that we met when she's a little bit older than me. She's four years older than me. And we met when I was 15 and she was 19 and I was her boss. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so we were both working, we were both working in this uh, children's theatre company and they do a summer project every year with, with like 50 plus children. So it's very intense working environment as you can imagine and I was the stage manager and Darren was on a placement she was studying drama in college and she did placement and she was the assistant stage manager <laughs> so I make sure to never let her forget that <laughs> but yeah so Darren's my best friend and she gave me this very beautiful um, I don't know what's the word like very ornate illustrated edition of The Wizard of Oz and she gave that to me to mark the publication of my first book and it was you know my first book came out during lockdown and yeah, so I didn't get to do any stuff. You know, I didn't get to do any events or a party or whatever. And she sent me this book and I had always loved The Wizard of Oz. And it was like one of the first books I was ever given as a child. Like my one of my first special books, you know, that I really held on to and cared about. Again, a different illustrated edition of it. And I watched the film very regularly. <laughs> and so, yeah, she she knew all this. And we, we weren't able to see much of each other because of, you know, I, I lived on my own, but Darren lived with her husband. So we weren't able to see much of each other during COVID stuff. And uh, so, yeah, she sent me this this very beautiful edition of it. I remember just like sitting in this tiny apartment I was living in and, and crying, reading over it. And I was in a very strange place during, during the lockdown because I was living on my own and was very much reverting to childhood. <laughs> and, and, yeah, just sitting around reading that over and over for, for quite a a number of weeks and it was very soothing. Do you keep a diary? There's um, a bit where you see bits of Carmel's diary from when she first falls in love with Derek, mm. who's the father of Lucy. And it's so 
joyful and you see her believing she's special, believing she's destined for more and feeling in love. And it's lovely to see, because I think a diary is so different from something like social media. I don't think there's any comparison, really. I think the diary is really such a private thing. Mm. Do you write a diary and have you ever written one? I did for many years, very intensively, between the ages of about nine and... And this is the thing, it's actually quite horrible. It's basically when I started using the internet properly, intensely, that I stopped. And that I hate that. And I do want to sort of remedy that quite soon if I can. So yeah, I, between the ages of about nine and 22, I kept a diary all the time. Not every day, but but very... I was very engaged with it. And I would write really at length about things. And then once I started using the internet, I stopped. And, and I really hate that about the internet. <laughs> I mean, I'm very addicted to it. I mean, le- less actually less so than I used to be. And during COVID, actually, I did manage to sort of step away from various parts of it. But... Well done, because I think that's the time that most people step towards <laughs> Well, it. I think actually it was that mania on Twitter that made me go like, oh my God, there's something bad is happening to us right now. Like, there is a part of me that got lost when I started, because I was sort of young enough when the internet became a major part of our lives that I wasn't native to it, but I was fluid enough and so I was quite, you know, instantly able to communicate on the likes of Twitter. And so I, I did that instead of talking to myself in a way. And like, obviously, given that I'm a writer, I, I did that in a different sense. And I do, you know, talk to myself with my fiction and essays or whatever. But I do miss not just the thing itself of writing a diary, but also I miss the the sense that like you're important enough to have a private life with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That actually isn't to do with any outcome. Yeah. Yeah. That may you you, you may go back and read. Yeah. You may just put in a box and never look at it again. Yeah. And I feel like I really yeah, I feel I do feel like I've lost I've lost something in that way that I, I would love to try and regain at some point. Okay, well let's move on to your yeah. next object. This sounds brilliant. This is something to sit on. <laughs> oh yeah, my uh, pink armchair. <laughs> I never, I've lived in London for about eight years, but I'd never really lived anywhere very long term. It was always kind of sublets and I, I would kind of come and go. I didn't have a lot of money and I would often have to go back to Ireland and or, you know, go and live in a cheaper situation because London is too expensive. And I never really settled anywhere. I don't know what I would have done otherwise, but I happened to have signed my book deal the previous autumn. So I did have enough money to be able to rent somewhere myself for the first time in London and uh, I moved into this place and for some reason the very first thing I did which seemed to like indicate more so than a bed or I don't know like a refrigerator or something I was like oh to have an armchair is a very I guess because you don't need it right so like it it seems like a very luxurious adult thing to own and to be like I'm going to sit in my armchair and read on a Sunday morning which I've probably done four times since then but like the idea of it was very important. It, sometimes the idea of it is as important as the doing of it. Yeah, and and because I lived on my own and it was COVID, I needed to have some idea about having a life, you know, like to have a little, even though it was in a tiny apartment, I needed to be able to have a little stage-managed life and, like, have the, the set for a life I could imag- at least imagine being adequate. Because, you know, in, in that moment during COVID where you were like, well, maybe it will never end. I have no idea if it will ever end. It felt very unreal. And then, yeah, absolutely. It was like, oh, do we have to make a life within yeah. these circumstances? We're not just on pause. Yeah, exactly. We actually have to live like this. Yeah, I yeah, know exactly what you mean. There's a bit where you talk about energy. So there's a bit where there's two characters who, they're not similar characters at all, but I think they both experience similar things. So Tom talks about this energy within him, which he 
just like this surging noise in his head pushing him forward. It has its uses with his work mm. commitments and with picking up women and men, but mm. it makes him pick at his hands and it, it makes him feel like it's going to start emerging through his skin. And there's another bit where Lucy, towards the end, talks about this sort of restless movement she has that manifests itself in like fidgeting and jerks and self-injury. And mm. these bits have really, really remained with me. Do you find that you work in spurts? Do you have that sort of drive that propels you forward? Yes, I do. But then I, I always feel like I have to qualify that by saying, like, I'm incredibly lazy and basically have no work ethic. So, like, I have a general sense of urgency that, like, I can't stand the idea that I will have wasted my life. So, like, in a very broad sense, I have a feeling of, like, I need to make sense of the fact I'm alive and justify my existence by making stuff. But in a day-to-day sense, I have no work ethic. So but maybe you have to have that to counterbalance <laughs> the desire. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I basically I have very extreme periods of doing nothing but working for a couple of months on end. And then I have nine months of the year where I have I struggle to do even the most basic, like, money jobs that I actually need to do to live. But I struggle to do anything. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm pretty all or nothing as a person in general. And so, that yeah, that does relate to my work as well. Well, let's move on to your third object. And this is something to cook with. So my very close friend is Adora, who, um, she was the first friend I made when I, I moved to Dublin in 2008 from where I'm from and started university. I dropped out very, very quickly afterwards, but happened to make this very close friend before I did drop out and we stayed friends ever since. And she's from San Francisco, but she'd moved to Dublin to go to university and she's actually never left. She still lives in Dublin, but yeah, she, she's just a magical person. And uh, we lived together for years in Dublin as well. And she was a very important person in my life in terms of well everything but especially in terms of like domesticity because I don't know she made she made that fun you know and like I'm a very irresponsible person in lots of ways I don't know I'm just not a very domestic person by nature and (laughs) I I was a bit spoiled growing up I had two older brothers and I was kind of like you do the dishes you know and like I was the baby and never had to do anything around the house quite a lot of the time and so I always thought it was a bit of a boring grown-up thing to be domestic and then when I lived with Isadora she made it so fun and and like chaotic you know and she was a she's a brilliant cook and she would often just like put together these dinner parties for nine or ten people and do it in 20 minutes and somehow everything was and like have eight or nine dishes and everything was delicious but it wasn't a sacrifice it was fun you know yeah and so anyway she her grandmother who she was very very close to um passed away I think it was about a year or maybe a year and a half ago now her name is Winnie and I never actually met her but I'd heard so much about her through Isadora and as a kind of tribute to her Isadora made these recipe cards for every month of the year with a recipe that was Winnie's to accord with each month and gave them to a lot of people that she was close with so that she could kind of continue her grandmother's memory. And they're just beautiful. And Isadora's a brilliant artist and playwright and lots of other things, but they're gorgeous. And like all of my mementos that I still have from the past, pretty much all of them are just doodles that Isadora's done. They're very beautiful and, yeah, something that I really treasure. So did she hand draw each yeah, set? Yeah, yeah, they're really amazing. Like, yeah, and and very, yeah, exactly. All the effort, like, it's it's really gorgeous. And she's someone actually who never really got into the internet in a way that I envy. And like, yeah, so a lot of her output is is that kind of stuff that I no longer do, which is really personalised and really intimate and, yeah, just very specific in a way that the internet kind of takes away. And, yeah, I, I love seeing her work because of that. It also seems like such a fitting tribute to her grandmother. There is death within the book and there's kind of misconceptions. There's a bit where Rose dies and Lucy doesn't understand that she's dead and she asks if Rose will be able to breathe inside the coffin. Mm -hmm. I should mention as well that Lucy is, I guess, neglected 
from an outside yeah. point of view, but you see all the reasons for it. Yeah. She is kind of ignored as a child, yeah. isn't she? So she doesn't understand that her grandmother's dead. Mm, she mm. sort of perhaps understands on one level, but doesn't on another. Yeah. Or maybe not at all. Yeah. I thought that bit was so sad. How important do you think ritual is after someone's died? Because this mm. conception of this is like just for the living, like a funeral is only for the living, depending on what you believe. Obviously, mm. if you're religious, then you don't yeah. believe that. But yeah, like stuff like the recipe cards, I love because yeah. it's a way, it's a really personal way of remembering someone and because they're the recipes that her grandmother used to make, it's so yeah. beautiful. And it's so active as well because people will make them. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I'm really interested in that because... I'm not a particularly depressive person, but part of like the reason that I'm often unhappy in the world is because I just dread the loss of people that I love so much. And I've been lucky that I haven't lost that many people, but I dread those losses so actively all the time. And the only thing that I feel like will help me in those circumstances, because I'm not religious, is to try and do something active like, like Isadora did, where you can try and quite actually, rather than in a kind of ambient way, f- feel like you're putting the person in the world again. And so probably for me, that would be through writing, I imagine. But like, you know, there's obviously so many different ways you can do that. But yeah, I mean, ritual is so important. And obviously Irish people are very concerned with the ritual after death. And it's so different here. And I've been to two funerals in England and probably only three in Ireland. But the difference is enormous. Like there's so much more, not pageantry, but like so much more like structured socialising that goes on around Irish death that is so important. And it's not that it makes you happier, but it does feel so crucial. And, you know, it's not not dissimilar to, for instance, like, um, what do you describe, is it in Judaism, like sitting Shiva, is that right? Shiva? Yeah. Um, and so like that kind of thing, which is very formatted. And even the fact that there is a format to follow, obviously it's quite comforting and means that you're surrounded by people. And I had a very good friend of mine in Ireland die about 10 years ago and... Like being with all of our friends in the, even the day after he died, we'd all just, you know, went into this house and like wrote the eulogy together and, and just like collapsed in a pile, the, you know, 20 of us in this house and just talked about him for 24 hours. And all that kind of thing, I think, is so important. And yeah, I, I feel like that will be crucial for me in, in the future. Do you get that feeling that you talk about, not exactly ghosts, but when they return to Ireland, mm. to the house that, that I don't want to give too much away about the plot? When they return to the house that, especially for Carmel, sort of held so much tragedy, Mm. Carmel talks about feeling not exactly the ghost of Rose, but like the sort of spirit Mm. of Rose within the house and allowing herself to feel like, in a sense, Rose is alive within those walls. Do you get that feeling sometimes when you walk into buildings? Do you get Mm. a feeling about rooms? And yeah. I do, yeah. And and also just um, in terms of in a broader sense, place that when I go back to Waterford, where I'm from, it's very comforting. You know, I probably got to go back maybe twice a year or something like that. But yeah, I feel like it myself in a different way when I go back to Waterford, which, yeah, sorry, I should say is like where they're from in the, in, in the book. It's where you're them. from and it's where they're yeah. from as well, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I really enjoyed setting it there because, again, like I got a lot of comfort. I was writing all of that from London, but like really enjoyed writing Waterford within that circumstance. I mean, I moved around a huge amount, always in Waterford, but me and my mum, I guess, would have been, well, she was very young when she had my brothers. She was 17 and 19 or something. But then even when she had me, I think, was 26 or something like that. And then became single when I was still pretty young and was working a bunch of odd jobs and we were never very settled for quite a long time. So we, we lived in probably 10 different houses before I was 10, that okay. kind of thing. Yeah. And so there are houses in Waterford 
that I walk past and there's such a feeling of like, oh, I acutely remember being seven years old in the house and I really feel it when I walk by, you know, yeah. Yes. Well, you've got that in so many different buildings as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and those thoughts are so, when you're that age, you have so much time to think in a way that you don't when you're older. It's like, Mm. and you look out of the window. I still remember the the view out of my window when I was a child because I just used to gaze out of the window. yeah. Yeah, I know. And yeah, I did, which I'm so grateful for. I did have a teenage life just before the internet. So yeah, I I remember like sitting on the roof in my dad's house and like creeping out the window and sitting on the roof and listening to my Walkman or whatever and just like feeling, you know, and like, (laughs) you know, you never sit around as an adult and like, oh, I'm just going to feel something right now. (laughs) Or you'd be like, I will feel something, but I'll do the washing up at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, let's move on to your final object. Um, So this is something to wear. Oh, um, my pendant from my ex. I have a very close ex-boyfriend, Mike is his name, and um, we broke up not actually not terribly long ago, but I, I'm thinking about moving to New York, basically, and I'm in the process of doing that and spending some more time there. So we broke up for kind of fairly functional reasons, and we just were in different places, but we really love each other a lot, and most of my breakups are like that. I've very rarely had a huge blowout with the boyfriend. It's usually about circumstance and it's always very painful for that reason, but also quite beautiful as well because there's not, I don't know, I'm, I'm, very, I'm pretty much close with everyone I've ever gone out with, almost. And yeah, me and Mike went on this trip to Hastings and had this like really idyllic, we happened to go there during a heat wave. And, you know, just one of these things when you're falling in love with somebody where you kind of have a perfect week. You know, we're doing this very cute thing where we're like, okay, let's separate for an hour and go and buy each other something and get a little present. He came back with this very beautiful turquoise pendant, uh, like gemstone thing for me, which I still wear all the time now. And yeah, I don't know. It's just nice to feel close to him still. And, you know, we talk all the time, but you have to have some separation after these things happen, obviously. But it's very important to me to not, I don't know, to not subscribe to the kind of, I don't know. People are often like, oh, you have to cut someone out to move on. And maybe that's true in a sense, or maybe it will be easier to do that. But I never have done that. Yeah. <laughs> and I really, yeah. And, and I'm kind of willing to suffer how bad it is because of how much I love him. And that's quite important. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think people, if they concentrate on the end of the relationship, sometimes let that colour the whole memory of the relationships. But actually, you know, there were were so many good times, even if sometimes it does end badly. Yeah, exactly. And regardless of how it ended, I don't regret a lot of my life, you know, and I don't regret anything that I had with anyone because it's all sort of ended up where I am now, which is a good place. But yeah, yeah, I don't really do much with regrets. Yeah, I think that's that's good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's a bit where, so Richie again, my, my yeah. favourite character. I a lot like of people's favourite character, actually, yeah. When he was in it, I feel like I would have fallen in love with him if I'd grown <laughs> up in Waterford when I was I was reading about him getting the job in the Italian restaurant mm. and you know, you just know he's going to mess it up and he's, you know, he's only drinking a bit and then he... Yeah. Yeah, it's... um Painful. Yeah, yeah. it is. And I felt like... So with him, I felt like there was this big space within him and he had the capacity to feel great joy, especially when he was with other people. There's this moment where he goes to a friend's house and he's feeling like, oh, let me go for a couple of drinks. And the way he describes them laughing at a prank that they've played on the teacher, (laughs) 
really reminds me like the way they can't stop laughing and they're clutching each other. I've had moments like that with my friend and it feels like completely unbridled joy. Yeah. So it's not really that he he doesn't feel like a melancholy character, yet there is this moment where he comes to what feels like a realisation where almost it all slips away, where he thinks that everything is malevolent yeah. and even beautiful things, the beauty only obscures the malevolence. Do you think that even with beautiful things, there is a flip side to them? Yeah, I think that if you're sensitive to things, as Richie obviously is, like, and that's, you know, part of his drinking is that he's so sensitive and and the pain of what he's doing is so horrible that he has to keep doing it to forget about how bad it is almost. Yeah. And I think if you are a sensitive person, then you're constantly aware, like we were talking about earlier about, you know, me being afraid of people dying or whatever. It, if you're enjoying something and you're a certain kind of person, you're constantly also aware of its eventual loss, you know. Yeah. Even if it, there's no suggestion that it's going to go away anytime soon, it's just, you know, everything ends. And everyone knows that, but some people are better able to compartmentalise that and to not focus on it at the time. And some people aren't able to do that. And I think for him especially, there's this feeling that no matter how nice or good or beautiful something is, the underside is constantly emerging for him and he's not able to enjoy anything without that. The title Ordinary Human Failings Mm. actually comes about in one of Carmel's thoughts during the time that the family's been brought to the hotel by Tom. And she says that the family's tragedies are too routine to be of note, that they're ordinary human failings. Do you think if you dig deep enough, every ordinary family contains elements of tragedy? And do you think that some form of salvation can be found no matter how late in the day? Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, like I, I would find it fascinating if I if you had access to any family to get into their stuff. Especially the ones who seem really like put together. Yeah. And like, which which actually is a thing that <laughs> this is not exactly true, but like is a thing that I only really experienced when I moved to England where people are more reserved than they are in Ireland, basically. You know, the families of friends or ex-boyfriends of mine or whatever who were just reserved in a way that I'd never experienced before. People are just a little bit more on the surface in Ireland, I find. And so there's like people here, families that I've met here who I'm like, gosh, like you'd never, on the surface, you'd never know that there was anything happening. But I know there is, you know, and it's that's even more fascinating. Every family has something. Part of the point of the book is that there's not like one big secret or anything. So I don't mean something as in like a secret or a hidden thing. But there's fascinating dynamics in every single human relationship, basically. Yeah, there's obviously always a possibility of reconciliation between these things that are unsaid. I don't think it actually happens that much, frankly. Like, I think pretty much everyone will go to their grave having regretted not doing something with another person or not voicing something. That's inevitable. Like, you're never going to be able to, like, solve every relationship in your life. And I don't even know if you should... I kind of don't know if it's necessary always to to have to do it. You know, there's things that if you're really achieving anything by voicing them at a certain point, and it's maybe okay to acknowledge that and say, look, our relationship isn't perfect, but I'm alive and you're alive and here we are together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what a brilliant way to end. Um, Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. It's been so brilliant to talk to you. Thank you so much. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, please. Make sure you never miss an episode. And if you can, please do leave us a review. If you're enjoying listening, it helps get the word out. It helps other people to find us. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or see who else we've spoken to, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcast. I'm Izzy Sutty. See you next time. <laughs>